welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here as always with my friend, colleague, and co-host from the Great White North, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great, Brian. I'm doing great. It's a very cold day here, but doing good. But, I've got my, we've got some yoga swag on. I'm like doing pretty well. And it's going to be light out for another 15 minutes or so. So you're loving life. Exactly. Exactly. Enjoy the rest of the day. Exactly. Uh, welcome back to Embargoed. Uh, a, a mini milestone. This is episode 40 for us. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Uh, we're we're going to save the big black tie gala for probably episode 50 or maybe episode a hundred, but, um, you know, worth noting episode 40. It's, we're so. getting there. This is, this is like, we've got a real podcast at this point. Um, contrary to what some may think, uh, but thank you all for coming back once again. Uh, appreciate all the feedback and comments from the last episode. We heard from a number of folks, uh, always appreciate that. Um, as always, before we get started, uh, we're not giving legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information. Uh, any and all opinions and comments you hear today are solely the product of, um, Mr. O'Toole and my own, um, somewhat skewed brains. And so blame us if you, um, do not agree or do not like anything you hear today. If you do like the pod, please spread the word, please subscribe, please give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. And you can find us in where you get your pod content. Um, so this is going to be, so just a quick word of housekeeping before we jump into the roadmap. So we're recording this just before Thanksgiving in the States here. Uh, it is Monday, uh, November 22nd when we record. This will not be going up until I think shortly after Thanksgiving in the States. So very end of November. Um, we likely will only be coming back for one more episode in 2022, which we will be I think we're still debating whether we keep the exact same format, but will be something akin to our top 10 stories or most interesting topics of 2021, just like we did last year. So, um, so stay tuned for that. We will record that at some point in early, mid-December, put that up just before the end of the year and the holidays. Um, so, so yeah, so we're, we're, um, I'm certainly thankful that, um, this year's almost over. I think I probably said that last year, but right. but um, but Let's I think it's worth repeating this year. Back to back bad years. Back to back I mean, tough years. On. Yeah. Just but, grinding it out. Happy to be here. Happy to be healthy, uh, yeah. vaccinated, thriving. So can't really complain that much. But yeah, it has been a it has been a grind as as we know it has for many of you out there. So um, not to be not to be forgotten. Definitely something to be thankful for and. Um, with that, let me, and, let me get into what we're going to cover today. Unless well, Tim, just, you have some thoughts. <laughs> just very quickly, just think about how great 2022 is going to be when you compare them to 2020 and 2021. So that's the, the glass half full version, I think. We, yeah, we would think, I would think that, although we do have the midterm elections coming up next year, which I'm sure is going to be uh, just a laugh riot when in the United States. So, you know, there is yes. that to, to look forward to, but in any event, I think that's right. Tim is always a, a glass half full kind of guy. Um, an eternal optimist and a magician with um, his his sanctions and export control wand. So I will I will get on board with that um, that train as well. And we're we're going to think positive thoughts for 2022 for sure. Uh, but before we get there, uh, and on our last kind of regular episode of Embargoed for 2021, here's what we're going to cover today. So a, a bit of um, an interesting collection of topics today, actually a number of things that we haven't talked about previously or don't talk about often, uh, interspersed with a few things we talk about 
incessantly. So it'll be sort of a good a good mix. We're going to actually start with Ethiopia, which is something we have touched upon very briefly when the new executive order came out, but we're going to dive into that a little more as there has been more action with regard to um, the brand new Ethiopia program recently. We're going to talk then about the Cambodia Business Advisory, which is also pretty fresh, pretty new. Um, we're going to talk about election interference by not Russia, Iran. Um, so lest anybody think that Russia has the market cornered on election interference in the U.S., you would be mistaken. Uh, we're going to cover that. And then we're going to talk about then we're going to talk about Russia and we're going to talk about one of our a couple of our favorite topics um, with regard to Russia, um, one being Ukraine, another being um, the perilous state of Europe's energy supply vis-a-vis -vis Nord Stream 2 and other sources of potential Russian interference and extortion. So that's um, the main set of topics for today. And then in the lightning round, two topics, um, one of which is um, whether or not the U.S. is going to um, engage in a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics, which has been in the news recently. I think it's fascinating for a lot of reasons, and, and, and including a number of the reasons that we talk about for U.S. trade policy with respect to China on a regular basis. So we're going to we're going to talk about that briefly. And then we're going to talk about the Burundi sanctions program, which was just put to an end very recently. RIP, the Burundi sanctions program. So um, that is our show for today. Um, any thoughts before we kick off, Tim? No, it is a smorgasbord of countries and programs. So good for good for all of those obscure program fans out there that never <laughs> never, never the, the the most underrated sanctions programs Maybe for we'll the people that, that episode one for time. the people who tweet at us and say we want more burundi content this is this is for <laughs> this you is for this you episode. yeah we're, we're, our hats are off to you so anyway a small but vocal um minority of our fan base i would say so in any event um so let's jump into it so topic number one is um as i said the new ethiopia executive order and more to the point some designations that were just announced very recently um about 10 days ago so shortly after we recorded the last episode so um to wind back just briefly here um there was a new executive order that was signed by president biden in september uh, we talked we talked about it very briefly, I think shortly after it came out. Um, this was standing up a brand new program, uh, OFAC program. And um, what was signaled there at the time, which I think is what I really want to come back to, is, is kind of how targeted and narrowly tailored both the authorization to impose sanctions were. It was in terms of the scope of the executive order. It was a menu-based sanctions program that included the possibility to impose blocking sanctions, but a menu-based sanctions program. And notably, and I, and I can't, I, I have to, I should have gone back to the archives, but notably at the time, the FAQs and the press release and the communications that Treasury put out on this were very, very adamant about the fact that there would be no 50% rule that would apply with respect to blocking sanctions or any other sanctions that were being imposed under the new Ethiopia sanctions program. Um, and the flip side of that being that the full intent and um, design of the program was to ensure that U.S. actions and actions of U.S. allies were not going to dry up, hinder, or otherwise uh, obstruct efforts by humanitarian groups, NGOs, and other foreign aid groups to continue to help out with the growing, worsening humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia that has been brought about by the civil war that is ongoing there. Um, and so. 
that is that's critical and i'll come back to that in a second so and then to further wind it back ethiopia of course a long-standing u.s ally very critical in the horn of africa to u.s efforts to combat um, terrorism especially in the wake of 9 11 has been seen as a pretty stable as a very stable regional partner until just recently uh and now of course in the last year or two under the current um government that is in power in ethiopia there has been a heightening of um tensions and now armed conflict with with rebel groups in the northern part of the country um and that has kind of kicked off what we're now seeing in terms of this worsening crisis and what i think was the impetus for creating the executive order in the program so a few days ago about 10 days ago as i mentioned the first designations we see the first designations that are um, issued here they are mostly targeted at eritrean actors and those who are affiliated with the eritrean government um, and that are by virtue of the treasury and state department statements on this are seen as kind of exacerbating or worsening or contributing to the general kind of suffering and um of the conflict that's going on in ethiopia at the moment um and uh and so again a small number of actors that are really targeted there notably when the when the eo was originally rolled out there was a it was very clear messaging that this is not meant to sort of um be targeted at ethiopia as a whole eritrea as a whole it was really meant to go to the root of the actors that were at least in the eyes of the u.s government and its allies are kind of exacerbating and flaming and making this situation worse and are preventing some kind of a potential negotiated resolution to the conflict there which is the kind of stated goal of the u.s and and, and its allies so my big question is and again when all the when the new designations came out the same kind of notes were struck about the how narrowly tailored the, the sanctions are no 50 percent rule um, applies here um, and that this is really meant to be kind of a surgical um, strike if you will with the sanctions tool to try to get at the actors that are at least in the eyes of the u.s government or the u.s policymakers are kind of most responsible for the worsening of the situation in in ethiopia and especially in, in the north so my question to you mr o'toole this strikes me as as a kind of fascinating test case for the the sort of new operating principles that ofac and the biden administration are bringing to bear when it comes to you know levying new sanctions rolling out new programs trying to kind of you know really give a little more thought and care and nuance to the way that they are claiming to be very mindful of, of the humanitarian um consequences and the collateral consequences of sanctions actions and not trying to do this um you know not trying to bludgeon um you know disfavored actors into submission but taking a very surgical precise approach to trying to do this in a way that is not going to have too many follow-on uh consequences of that are going to be detrimental to the, the people on the ground that that the u.s government is claiming it wants to protect and wants to serve so my question to you is what do you what do you think of this approach what do you think of this this action in light of the executive order 14046 that is that is underlying the ethiopia program and and how do we think this is going to play out so i like it i mean in theory i really like it because 
sanctions do have a lot of unintended consequences and and they aren't very precise in many parts of the world and the 50 percent rule creates even less precision because you can't even really tell who sanctions so you almost have to assume that everybody is that's anywhere close to the company that's sanctioned because otherwise there might be an ownership chain that you don't know about um you know you start talking about an Ethiopia sanctions program, the banks here in Ethiopia, when they see it in the news, and then all of a sudden you can't do any banking in Ethiopia, even though that's clearly not the intent of this. And so kind of both a speaking approach from OFAC to say these are narrow and targeted, and Ethiopia is not under sanctions, that these are really just directed at the conflict in northern Ethiopia that is spilled over from Eritrea. The first sanctioned parties are from Eritrean, not Ethiopian. It's all good. I'll be curious to see two things. One is, you know, does it work to really shut down the behavior of the um, of the act of the actors that they're trying to get at? Because the problem with this approach is, and the reason that OFAC often uses a broader approach, is that it's really hard to sanction everybody when you go into the area that you want to get. And so there's some kind of both strategic ambiguity, but then also when they do these embargo programs, it's not even ambiguity it's just iran is under sanctions so presumptively you can't do anything in iran and yeah there's lots of transactions that would be allowed in iran but that won't get done as a result of that like humanitarian transactions for example that are going to be deterred but we're okay with that because we want to put some real pressure on iran and we don't want to have a lot of holes in the sanctions here when you have them so targeted you worry that for example there's no 50 percent rule so if a company gets sanctioned they can just have their subsidiary do the same thing. And yeah, OFAC will probably catch them eventually, but how quickly? So if you essentially just move all the resources to the sub, can the behavior go on without really being deterred? I mean, that's the reason for the 50% rule, and we'll see if that works. And in the same way, like how much of this stuff in that's going on in terms of the attacks on uh, humanitarian workers that prompted the sanctions, the violence, the the government corruption that's going on or the the corruption that's going on in northern Ethiopia, how much of that continues? How much of that can they really stop with this sort of sanctional behavior? And if they do stop it, does it have this sort of spillover effect where, you know, it's it's interfering with other sorts of trade? I mean, it's really the balance that you've got to do to get the sanctions policy right. You want to go big enough to stop the behavior you want to deter, but not so big that you cut off a lot of other behavior that you don't want to deter. Um, OFAC has often chosen to go too big and cut off a little bit more than maybe it wanted to because it would, wants to make sure that it gets all the bad behavior. Now it's probably it's going small. We'll see if it gets all the bad behavior, but doesn't get the behavior that it's actually trying to to let go. Yeah, what I would what I would add to this is just to, for context for anybody who hasn't seen the the press release on this or or, or the designations, the, the the folks that are the entities and the people who are who are targeted here who have been designated it is the Eritrean military and it is the Eritrean the sole sanctioned political or sole recognized political party in Eritrea along with a couple of individuals and then a holding company that holds many of the sort of assets and other kind of economic drivers um, and enterprises uh, of the um, of that political party and, and another entity that controls um, sort of property and financial interests. So to me, this is clearly 
they're clearly trying to in, exert pain on these actors in a very specific way to limit it and to thereby get them to either to change behavior and either f- sort of step aside and allow there to be some kind of talks or maybe even make them a driver to have talks because if they say, well, now we're, now we are in a materially worse position than we were before because of the sanctions and we don't have access to, you know, we have two, two main sort of cogs of government that are now sub that are subject to blocking sanctions and the, these economic interests that are now tied up because of the blocking sanctions, we need to, Put an end to this, and will that be enough? I don't know, but um, but clearly that is the that is the kind of surgical maneuver they're going for here, and whether or not that will work will be interesting. And and in the meantime, what that will do for anybody who has ongoing interests in the region or in these two countries, how that will impact the way that people are looking at um, these things uh, is is I think an open question of whether they will take the kind of typical blanket we're staying away view or whether they will sort of read between the lines and say okay there's maybe more we can do here but but we have to we're now in the midst of kind of this waiting game to see whether the sanctions have the desired effect will be kind of fascinating to see but I I do really think this is kind of a you know a fascinating test case that we haven't really seen yet and perhaps this is what this the administration want maybe wanted to happen in in burma let's say or in other places but that not there maybe wasn't i and again i'm not exactly sure the sort of what leverage and what impact this is going to have but certainly you can see the telegraphing of what this is supposed to do or hopefully going to do from a u.s perspective so you know time will tell if this really does change behavior and, and sort of get them to stand down or, or maybe even be a force for, um, you know, to, to prompt further discussions and talks to, to resolve the situation. Yeah, it seems very surgical. So so I think that that's good. And it's also, I think, in, and we'll talk about it in a couple of the other segments. I mean, it's an, another good example of, of the, the, the new administration being focused on kind of different issues in terms of sanctions than, than certainly the last administration was. I mean, this was really focused on um, you know, some some human rights and, and corruption issues in northern Ethiopia resulting in the spillover from from, you know, a conflict in Eritrea. And and it's not a, it's not kind of the we don't like Ethiopia's foreign policy. It's not even really we don't like Eritrea's foreign policy. It's like we're trying to stop at least to contain this one type of behavior and we're going to do it in a very targeted way. And it's kind of a different type of behavior than sanctions are often targeted at, and it is certainly very surgical compared to some of the other programs. Yeah, no, agreed. So in any event, we'll, we'll leave that behind for now. That's, um, I, I think it is just an interesting, again, an interesting test case. So anybody out there who's kind of following this generally, I mean, I just saw remarks from uh, someone at the State Department who's the special envoy uh, for the U.S. to the Horn of Africa who said, in some, you know, if you told me nine months ago or a year ago that I would have this job and that my number one concern or worry would be Ethiopia, I would have said you're crazy. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but um, this has this has really inflamed to a point that it is of significant concern in the region, obviously, and to U.S. and to the U.S. and, and its allies. So it'll be interesting to see how this how this kind of plays out. But um, it it is a a. a, a a different approach. And so we'll, we'll see what that approach yields, but 
something to be to be watching. So with that, let's um let's shift gears and go on to uh let's go across to Cambodia. Well, we'll go to Cambodia, and it does kind of continue the theme. I mean, as I was just talking about with Ethiopia, I mean, these are issues that are not always or or really in the last five years or so have not often been the province of of sanctions, although that's really changing. Um, You've got a a situation in Cambodia that appears that that there is that that the U.S. is becoming concerned that Cambodia is ripe with corruption. This is, you know, somewhat on the heels of President Biden's announcement last summer that stopping corruption is going to be a much bigger priority of, of his administration and that they are going to use all the powers within the all the tools within the the government's toolkit to, to go after corruption and and um, one of those tools is is sanctions and it's actually the global Magnitsky program which has been around for a while at this point where sanctions can be imposed for governmental corruption and so on November 10th um, in Cambodia the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioned two Cambodian government officials. One's Chow Pirun, and I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but they call him Chow in the listing. And then T Vin, who they call him T in the listing. And Chow and T uh, are high-ranking uh, members of the Cambodian military. And they were sanctioned because OFAC believes that they were involved in a um, they were involved in the, the building of a project called Reem Naval Base um, by the Cambodian government, and they were apparently funneling some of the proceeds um, from the, the project into their own coffers. So they were skimming some of the funds, and they were apparently um, conspiring to inflate the costs, which you know presumably they worked with the defense contractors there to inflate the costs, or at least that's what the government believes. And so the the OFAC put them onto the SDN list uh, pursuant to the, the GLOMAG EO, which is 13818, um, as as part of this corruption. Now, that alone probably wouldn't have warranted a, a segment. Um, but the other thing that, that the government did on November 10th um, was it came out with an advi- a Cambodia business advisory on high-risk investments and interactions. And basically, state, treasury, and commerce put together an advisory that talked about the risks of – it's mostly corruption within, um, within Cambodia, uh, but also, uh, also uh, money laundering risk. And so, so the, the, I found the advisory to be relatively um, surprising in the sense that Cambodia has apparently grown so much over the last 10 to 15 years um, that the banking system has expanded without a lot of oversight. Um, All sorts of other industries have grown, uh, real estate, casinos, um, infrastructure is is being built at a rapid pace, and and with all of these, at least in Cambodia, have come what the U.S. believes to be a, a, a pretty wild amount of corruption. And so these designations were announced at the same time that this advisory was, was put out. Um, I think that that would have to be seen in that context as a warning shot um, to Cambodia. But also, you know, there's a, a when you read through this advisory, in terms of the advice to um, financial institutions in particular, there's a lot of emphasis on due diligence for whatever investment is going on in Cambodia. And so I suspect that coming out of this, that both U.S. and non-U.S. financial institutions will be doing a lot of due diligence with respect to their Cambodian Cambodian transactions, Cambodian customers, any interactions with the Cambodian banking system, um, any 
sort of transactions that touch on either Cambodian real estate, casino, infrastructure, any of that I think is going to be subject to a much higher level of scrutiny coming out of this. Um, and, and I think that probably those two designations are the first, but not the last designations of that sort that we'll see coming out of Cambodia. Yeah. So the advisory, the joint advisory that was put out rang uh, in a very similar uh, tone to me to what we saw a few months ago on Xinjiang. And it was kind of a broad, you know, shot across the bow um, to an entire region or country in this in this uh, instance to really put everybody on notice, in particular, those who are in some of the industries or maybe thinking about investing or or, or engaging in projects in certain industries that Tim mentioned um, on notice of the, you know, really just systemic risk that exists here in doing business in these areas. And it's not so much, you know, there's the GLOMAG um, designations that Tim mentioned at the outset. Clearly, you know, there could be more coming there. But I think more than that, there was just a, again, this is kind of a this has become the trend now in with the U.S. government agencies kind of uh, to market and bring awareness to these issues in a impactful way by teaming up, issuing these advisories, you know, packing into you know one place this one 13-page document, you know, lots and lots of sorted details about everything that's going on in Cambodia, whether from um, you know prior criminal matters or other actions or other sort of sources that the U.S. has been able to kind of call together and, you know, to taken together, it is quite a damning document that really calls out and calls to attention just incredible, just an incredibly risky environment to do business in, 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 in a nutshell. And I would, I would add a couple of, a couple of sort of additional or final thoughts to that as well. Clearly the financial sector is kind of front and center here, not surprisingly, because this is, you know, Treasury is one of the architects of this advisory. Um, you know, if you read carefully through the the, the description of this, the, um, the uh, expansion of the banking industry and the microfinance industry in Cambodia in particular, they, there might as well, it might as well have been written in like red highlighter in the advisory. It was really yep. being written with a, you know, everybody needs to pay attention to how risky this is and the fact that there is no regulation locally on any of this. And these are just, in many instances, conduits for illicit activities and including, you know, human trafficking, drug trafficking, uh, money laundering of all kinds, et cetera. So that's a big thing. Another thing is they, they call out in here and it's further down in the advisory, but it is a highly relevant point. Um, you know, this is not news to those in the financial industry, strictly speaking, especially in the in the global in the more sophisticated kind of global financial institutions, because Cambodia was added to. I mean, not only do they rank very poorly on all of the kind of anti-corruption indexes, but in 2019 they were added to the FATF gray list. So they have been identified previously as being a high risk for AML and counter-terrorist financing. Um, you know, not that long ago, and so they they're they're firmly on the radar of the big global financial institutions in this regard and anything that gets routed through Cambodia and the fact that it is a largely, you know, unbanked or cash based economy in many instances, I think just adds to that risk. But, you know, that is something certainly to be um, aware of as well. And I think 
again, just in the in the industries that Tim mentioned, sort of casinos, infrastructure, um, some of these other things that are called out specifically, um, no doubt that that those folks, anybody who's engaging in or thinking about engaging in projects in those areas, this is now, you know, alarm bells are sounding and there there has to be some thought given as to whether or not that is sort of something within your risk appetite as to whether or not you can endure that or not. Um, and then, uh, but secondly, I think just any, again, sort of the, 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 the real um, sustained focus on the financial um, sort of sector in Cambodia and kind of how, um, how much, you know, the advisory kind of calls into question the integrity of that system, the oversight that's accorded to that system, uh, and how, you know, anybody who is doing anything with Cambodia, routing things through Cambodia has to, I think, now be considered to be noticed up and on alert that this is something you have to account for if you're, if you're engaging in any transactions that, that flow through Cambodia. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if my recollection is right, I think that Xinjiang was the last advisory that was done similar to this with respect to a particular region. And you can see in the last six months how the, the enforcement activity with respect to Xinjiang province has just exploded. I, I suspect we may not see something as, as huge with Cambodia, but I suspect there will be a big uptick in enforcement actions and in in certainly in compliance actions because of the targeting of the financial industry. I think we'll see a lot more transactions that are routed through Cambodia that don't make it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So in any event, I think this is probably just the beginning of what we're going to see with respect to Cambodia um, from OFAC and from other U.S. agencies. So, um, you know, just kind of, again, one that we're just kind of planning a flag on for the moment. Yeah. Stay um, tuned. To, to be aware of. Yeah, but that's going to be, I think the, I think the noise there is likely to grow over time and as a, as a, as a compliance risk and, and just something to, to be aware of um, for those who perhaps weren't treating it on the same level as some of the other countries that we spend a lot of time talking about otherwise. So let's leave Cambodia behind for the moment. Let's shift over to Iran. So um, just recently, uh, just last week, actually, there were a couple couple things that happened in concert. So number one, there were a series of designations that came down from OFAC that targeted Iranian um, cyber actors and, a, and an Iranian entity or a couple of Iranian, one, one entity and six individuals that were targeted for sanctions under the um, the election, uh, this, the election uh, EO um, for trying to attempting to interfere in the 2020 u.s presidential election through a variety of different schemes some of which involved actual breaches of or at least attempted breaches of state election um, infrastructure uh, sending intimidating message messages to voters spreading disinformation um, and and the like so there was a whole host of different activities um, there uh, interestingly, a handful of those folks were already designated under um, other OFAC authorities because of their ties to the IRGC. So this is this will tell you that this, these are these are folks that are kind of integral to the Iranian um, defense and intelligence infrastructure uh, and are now at least now have been identified in, in service a different context for for election interference. Um, with that, on the same day, I believe there was an indictment unsealed um, that uh, charged two of those same individuals, this, essentially the two 
the two individuals who were charged with being kind of behind the keyboard um, and manning the infrastructure that was responsible for actually carrying out these um, attacks and sending these messages uh, um, that were directed at the U.S. Um, with a variety of um, crimes, uh, of the first of the first couple of which relate to the C Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and unauthorized access to um, certain uh, U.S. Uh, computers and servers uh, in an attempt to, as I said, sort of um, obtain um, access to voter information and um, and the like, and then to to send some of these messages again to, to voters to uh, tamper with. In one instance, the allegation is that there was a attempt to tamper with and change um, a media company's um, uh, messaging or postings about certain events that were happening around the election. Um, there was some targeting of journalists. There were a whole variety of things that were going on. This was also directed. So this was charged by in SDNY. This, that's where the indictment was because there was activities that were directed at, at um, persons in the district. Um, but it was being treated, notably, it is being treated as a national security matter and is being um, prosecuted in conjunction with my former colleagues at National Security Division because at the end of the day, these are state actors or state-sponsored actors um, that, are being, that are behind these um, alleged attacks uh, that we have here. So I think this is, you know, in some ways, couple of wrinkles here that I think are worth talking about for a second. So number one, obviously we spent a lot of time in recent months talking about ransomware, talking about um, malicious cyber activity. This is sort of a different flavor and a different vein of that. Obviously it, it's been a little while since we've talked about election interference, you know, for thankfully, but we're back there again and it's a, and it's another foreign power, another U S uh, um, adversary that is, uh, you know, alleged to be behind this one, Iran. Not that this is the first time that Iran has been publicly identified as having done something like this. The same was true in 2016. Um, but as far as 2020 is concerned, this is sort of a new round and a new set of data points to sort of, you know, for people to be aware of, to, to look into and to take a look at what was being done, uh, what's alleged to have been done. Um, by by these actors uh, in in an effort to try to undermine the election, and then the, the you know the second is something that we've been talking about a lot, which is you know look this is kind of a hybrid approach, right? Where we see the OFAC designations, we see um, the indictment that's brought against at least a couple of the actors that are alleged to be involved here, and it's all being coordinated and rolled out kind of simultaneously, um, in in part because I think the government realizes that you're getting a little more um, kind of splashy headlines and bang for your buck in terms of the visibility when you're when you're sort of combining all these things. There's also, a, I think, a pretty substantial reward out for the um, information on the potential to help that could lead to the potential arrest of the two individuals who were charged in that criminal indictment. So, um, you know, there's a lot uh, that kind of goes behind this. This is, I, I can say with utmost certainty, this is these are among the most high profile, high priority cases that the Justice Department is working on and bringing at this moment. So, um, you know, this is this goes all the way to the top and to the highest priorities that we will see enforcement wise here. And, and again, it's a little bit of a different ilk than we're seeing with the ransomware attacks. But at the same time, it's kind of all of a piece and, and, and just sort of another um, illustration and another sort of thing to be aware of when it comes to 
this type of activity and, and, and understanding sort of the other ways that the government, the U.S. government is trying to go about combating that. So with that, I'll, I'll sort of stop and, and throw it to Tim for, for his thoughts. Not a lot of thoughts to add on. I mean, free and fair elections are appropriate and important <laughs> in this country. Um, we're, no we're pro. Be, we're in favor. Pro, we're in favor democracy. of free and fair elections I, and I know not that's, to have. Yeah, that's it's very that's, controversial. We're going to go out on a limb. Point. Embargoed is pro democracy. Pro democracy. Free and fair elections. Yes. And 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 anti steel. So stop the steel. I 100% agree. Yeah. And to the extent by the Iranians I, or by the Iranians or otherwise. Yes. Any anyone who's trying to to steal an election in the United States should be sanctioned. That's my view. Um, and I'm gonna. Uh, you heard it here first. I, I mean, that, I, I agree with you on, on all of the stuff about that. This is, this is going to be a big priority. It's part of the, it, it's, it's part and parcel of the, the focus on cyber that OFAC and really the enforcement agencies have, have started to, to go on. It's, it's with Iran and not Russia. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I, they didn't say a whole lot in the, the piece about like how or for what to what end these folks were trying to influence the election. I kind of would have liked to have heard about that because I suspect there's an kind of an interesting story there, which which they didn't hear. But regardless, I think that this is probably there's probably more to come, not just from Iran, from Russia. And um, the government is hard at work trying to to combat it. And fortunately, it hasn't and doesn't change election results here. and, And hopefully it never will. Yeah, and again, not this is not sort of unprecedented. We have seen Iran engage in this type of conduct before, or, or actors who are acting, or sort of under orders, or acting at the behest of the Iranian government before. So it is not, this, it's not groundbreaking in that regard. We have obviously seen less um, visibility, I think, on this angle than we have seen on the Russia angle in the past um, two election cycles, certainly in the U.S., but. That's not to say that this is not just as big a concern or, or just as big a um, enforcement priority. So, um, yeah, it'll be uh, agree with Tim that I think we're going to see more here. It's just it, it's just kind of another interesting um, wrinkle and another interesting kind of iteration iteration on that same theme of, um, you know, focusing on cyber uh, related um, malicious cyber activity and in particular in this instance, you know, targeting targeting the elections here in the States. So um, I think we can leave that for now. Um, but with that, let's turn to Russia and let's talk about a couple of our favorite topics, which are Ukraine and Europe's energy supply. And I'll toss it to Tim. So a lot happening there. And I think this is this segment is also kind of a placeholder for what for, yes. for what's going to really happen at some point in the near future. But but basically, you know, our old friend Ukraine, um, it, 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 which is a uh, a U.S. ally and Secretary Blinken was there within the last couple of weeks talking to the Ukrainians in light of a big Russian buildup, one of the big, biggest Russian army military buildup uh, buildups on the eastern Ukraine border since 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine and, and kept Crimea and still holds Crimea. And so there is concern with respect to that region of the world that there's, you know, we're sitting on the edge of another of another power keg that's about to go off, which prompted the the, the Russia sanctions to begin with. Um, one piece of those sanctions includes uh, sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which was uh, came out of a couple of congressional enactments that we've talked about where the U.S. has the ability to impose sanctions on Nord Stream 2. Um, by the time the Biden administration got into office, they made the call that Nord Stream 2 was so far along that they couldn't stop 
stop it with sanctions. And although they were not in favor of Nord Stream 2, don't like Nord Stream 2, um, they they lifted some sanctions on Nord Stream 2, and it looked like the, the, the pipeline was going to be finished. The policy, the, the, the relationship between Nord Stream 2 and Ukraine is important to kind of think about in this conversation, and that is that Currently, Ukraine is one of the, the main ways that Russian energy gets into Europe. So it passes through Ukraine. And by passing through Ukraine, Ukraine takes a cut as any you know transshipment hub takes. And so Ukraine makes a lot of money on Russian oil passing through Ukraine on its way to Europe. If Nord Stream 2 gets finished, that route doesn't go through Ukraine. And so all of that energy coming into Europe will go via Nord Stream 2 and not via Ukraine, so they'll lose business. It also will increase the ability of Russia um, to essentially cut the the flow on the pipeline at any point, which is what the U.S. is so worried about, is that Europe will become more and more dependent on Russian oil, and Russia will have leverage uh, if it wants to cut off the flow of the oil um, to hold Europe hostage in a way that we saw happen kind of with the colonial pipeline here. So so that's the big fuss about Nord Stream 2. The reason it was in the news in the last week, it, it, it's not, it, the news articles actually had some kind of, you know, breath, breathless headlines. I think the one that I'm looking at right now from the New York Times is Germany suspends approval of Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And you, that makes you think, so Germany had been the biggest supporter of Nord Stream 2. Um, you know, Chancellor Merkel is transitioning out of office now that she's in the process of retiring. A new government from a different political party is coming in. She was a huge champion of Nord Stream 2. Her party was. It, it, this article, the headline, the timing it starts to make you think, well, maybe the new government is going to be less friendly and this is all part of a, you know, denial of approval process and Germany is going to turn away from Nord Stream 2. But then when you read the article, all it says is that there was an application deadline and Nord Stream 2 was supposed to supposed to have established a German sub by a certain date and hasn't yet established the, the German subsidiary. It was trying to use a Swiss subsidiary. The Germans said, no, you really need to use a German subsidiary. And so we're not going to take your application until the subsidiary is established. I mean, as, as you and I and probably most listeners of the pod know, it's not very hard to, to set up a subsidiary. It's just a matter of paperwork and trying to figure out who's going to serve in what role. So this is not some sort of development that is really going to jeopardize the completion of Nord Stream 2. It's just going to slow it down by a little bit. And so I thought the headlines were a little bit too, um, too they made it seem too consequential. It seems like this is just a, a bump in the road. It may be that the new German government takes another um, view of Nord Stream 2, although I, I tend to doubt it. But whether they will or not, this development really doesn't have that much to do with it. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add there or the thing that kind of struck me about it was, you know, in light of the posturing and the military buildup that we're seeing in uh, in Russia that is, you know, kind of overtly threatening Ukraine um, to the point where I think in one of the news articles or one of the reports I saw that the, the director of the CIA whisked away to Moscow to have sort of a high level talk with the folks at the Kremlin about <laughs> what's going on. And that was worried. That was a little worrisome. Trying to diffuse the situation so that we don't end up in, uh, you know, World War Three or something similar. So um, that apparently or at least reportedly happened pretty recently. Um, so with that in the as the backdrop and with, you know, a lot of hard rhetoric flying across, you know, kind of back and forth um, and things 
you know, the U.S. has taken a tougher tone on Russia, certainly since Biden has been in. But I wouldn't say that there's been anything that's been sort of terribly, um, you know, noteworthy or incendiary that has happened going in either direction, really, in the last year. Um, and certainly that we that we've been tracking. And so, you know, with the pause that's happening with Nord Stream 2 kind of getting final approval, whether it's whether it's a pure kind of administrative hold up or, or not, or whether that's a pretext for something else, I don't know. But in, in all events, the, you know, there is not going to be any gas flowing this winter, it seems, as a result of this holdup. And so right. that is going to put a strain on the gas that's being supplied into Germany and to Europe. And, and given the shortages that already exist, that is going to you know, ratchet up tensions to some degree. So there is there is that on the one hand. And on the other hand, we do have um, you know, Putin deciding to, you know, play, play a little bit of chicken with Ukraine and the U S and other Western ally and, and, and their, um, collective Western allies to see kind of how far he can go with, um, you know, kind of threatening and seeing sort of, you know, whether or not there, there could be some, you know, push to action or, or, or further, um, events that may transpire here that could really, um, you know, be consequential. So I think, as Tim said, I think we do view it as largely a placeholder for now, but I do think it's been a little while since we've kind of weighed in and checked in on this whole situation. You know, the, you know, Secretary Blinken made one of the, you know, the kind of breathless quotes, as Tim said, that he, that was attributed to him was like, you know, Russia's got to be careful about making a big mistake, big mistake here or something. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to that effect. Right. And, you know, that's, that's uh, that's a little more than your sort of average kind of mundane, um, you know, just trading barbs in the, in press releases or in press conferences. So, um, you know, we we shall see. But but I think the cocktail of, you know, what's happening with the military buildup, Nord Stream 2 being on pause, at least for a little while, and the U.S. still having the ability to do something there, perhaps if they want to and to make things messy and the new German government that's coming in or about to come in. I just think there's a lot of moving parts there and a lot of potential that we could see, um, you know, something sort of interesting or new emerge out of this kind of collection of circumstances in the next few months. So that's part of the reason we wanted to highlight it. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a powder keg. And and I didn't mean to suggest anything otherwise. And it's definitely worth talking about because, um, you know, this could turn into a huge international crisis at any moment because there's lots of signs there. All I meant was, in terms of the alarmist headlines, was just like the the headlines made it sound like there was a big change in right. the developments with respect to Nord Stream 2. And the fact is, nothing's really happened to right. change it other than, you know, this, the slowdown will change when energy gets to Europe. And so that could create shortages. And then, you know, there's people making statements in the media that suggest that this may have been intentional. And then, uh, right. It's and, not like the Germans have flip-flopped as a substantive matter right. on whether they support the right. project or not. Right. Yes, correct. And so and that was a little bit misleading, at least at first at first blush. But yeah, I agree. So anyway, we'll, we, this is one, obviously, this is an area we, we keep a close watch on because it has huge consequences for U.S. trade and sanctions policy and, and our friends in Western Europe and lots of other uh, areas of the world. So we will certainly be keeping a, a close watch on this and I'm sure we'll be coming back to this in the new year, uh, if not sooner. So, um, we will leave that for now. Um, so let's now pause for the lightning around sound effect and we'll go to the final two topics. Uh, number one, which is 
a really interesting one in many ways, which is uh, for those who have been tracking this recently, um, the uh, U.S. has just kind of reiterated very recent. So to, to back up a step, President Biden and President Xi just had their summit, their virtual summit, um, where they kind of traded, um, you know, uh, platitudes about um, and sort of soft warnings to one another about U.S.-China relations and, um, you know, tried to at least mend some fences, perhaps, to suggest that the U.S. and China could work uh, with some degree of harmony going forward into, uh, you know, in the in the coming years after after things being so fraught for the past several years. Um, that just wrapped up very recently. Uh, I'm forgetting the date when it wrapped, but it, earlier this month. And so shortly on the heels of that, there there became a, a lot of chatter started coming out about the upcoming Beijing Olympics, the winter, which Beijing, of course, is hosting the Winter Olympics 2022. And um, that also brought about some calls for the U.S. and other um, allies to potentially boycott the Be- Beijing Olympics as a show of um, uh, sort of uh, as a rebuke to the Chinese government and their record on human rights and anti-democratic practices. And notably, of course, with respect to Xinjiang, with respect to Hong Kong, with respect to you know, many of the issues that we spend a lot of time talking about and that underpin a lot of what's going on with respect to U.S. trade policy uh, vis-a-vis China. And and one way that this has materialized or that has come about is that or this, there's been a suggestion, and apparently there are live discussions about this going on at the highest circles of government, for the U.S. to engage in a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, which would amount to no U.S government officials would attend and kiss the ring of the Chinese government, essentially. And as, as somebody pointed out, um, I think not incorrectly, you know, give them photo ops with uh, high ranking U.S. government officials on the one hand, high ranking Chinese government officials on the other hand, that could then be spung by the propagandists in China as tacit U.S. approval for China's broader policy, whether it be with respect to Xinjiang or Hong Kong or anything else. Um, And so, but it would not involve pulling U.S. athletes. It would simply just, it would simply involve no formal U.S. kind of political or state delegation to accompany the team to Beijing. So given that, and there have been calls from both sides of the aisle in Congress to do this, um, you know, some China hawks, uh, including Senator Cotton, have said we sh- he's called, I think, for a full boycott. And then there are others on the Dem side that have said, you know, diplomatic boycott's the way to go. You know, I think if history is any teacher here, uh, when President Carter decided to pull the U.S. Olympic team out of the Moscow Olympics in 1980, I think that is largely seen as an epic failure um, in hindsight because it didn't really accomplish anything. It sort of was seen as a soft rebuke to the USSR at the time, it, and it kind of left the US open to a lot of criticism. It it sort of uh, undercut and you know crushed the dreams of hundreds of US athletes who didn't get to participate in those games. Um, obviously, Moscow returned the favor in 1984, and then at the end of it, what do we have out of those two events? I don't know if, it's, if there's really much to speak of in terms of lasting consequences. So I think that is certainly underpinning a lot of the thinking on this, but at the end of the day, 
we are talking about the same kind of policy considerations that are at the heart of all of the kind of U.S. sanctions and U.S. trade policies that we spend, again, most of our time talking about on this pod and thinking about. So, Tim, quick thoughts. What do you think about a diplomatic yeah. boycott of the Olympics? Well, I'll start where you left off because this was kind of where I came to it on. I mean, why are we talking about this on this podcast? And the reason is this is kind good, of a soft good question, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, but the reason is apart from the fact that we're both kind of sports fanatics. And so like That's anything that has to do with the Olympics, we'd rather talk about that than say like Nord Stream 2 or what have you. <laughs> but, but I, I, I mean, I think that there, it does make a lot of sense to talk about it here. And, and the reason is that this is kind of a soft, a form of soft power. I mean, soft, foreign policy influence is really kind of within the realm of sanctions. It's not a sanction per se, but it's the government, it's our government trying to take action against a foreign government that doesn't involve military force, that does, that involves kind of a walling off, if, if you will, of the country in, in a particular way. I agree with you, the 1980 Olympic boycott is pretty widely seen as a failure because I think the, the main victim of that boycott was the, the not only the U.S. athletes, but the international athletic community. I mean, it, it tainted the gold medals of the people who won, who were kind of collateral damage in that sense, because they didn't have all of the countries that were there the same way in the 1984 Olympics. Anybody who won a gold medal, in some sense, that those medals are tainted because they, they weren't, all of the competitors weren't necessarily there. And that it's not to take away from any of the medalists in those games, but that's, that is kind of one seen as one of the problems with that. And if any gold medalists from 1980 or 1984 are listening, we are not meaning to throw shade on your medals. So please don't, please don't tweet at us. We have nothing but respect for you and carry on. Good job. Good job, guys. (laughs) But, but, but basically the, the, what, what it didn't accomplish was really put that much, hurt to the to the Russian government um, at the time. And here, I think the the level of hurt that pulling the athletes at is the, the, the main the, the, the main recipient of the damage is somebody that whose behavior you're not trying to, to change and and the, the damage to the government is so to the government whose behavior you are trying to change is so slight as to not be worth it. A diplomatic boycott strikes me as kind of an easy fix to that, right? I mean, you get the publicity of a quote unquote boycott without actually having to harm anyone. Cause I can't imagine that any of the, the U S diplomats who aren't going to be able to go to the, to the Olympic games in, in uh, China in, in 2022 are going to be that torn up about it. And so, you know, it, it, a couple of work trips are canceled. Um, some high publicity photo ops are taken away from the Chinese government. Again, the harm isn't that much, but at least the, the harm to the Chinese government is not going to be that much. But it, it's a little bit of bad publicity at a time when they were hoping to get nothing but positive publicity. And it's a little bit less of a, a, a less of a show of support from the U.S. government for anything Chinese, which right now in this political climate, I, I'm not surprised that it's bipartisan in that sense. But I think it strikes me as kind of the, the right the measured approach as opposed to the full boycott that President Carter did of the, the 1980 um, Moscow Olympics. So, so good bully, bully for them. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I, I would add just to, to, um, to uh, hop onto a point Tim made, which is a good one. If we think of sanctions, ultimately everything we talk about proper, proper economic sanctions as being partially to change conduct and to have sort of actual real world consequences, partially, to as a as again as a sort of messaging marketing communications tool to spread the word and the policy goals of the US broadly across the global community then 
you know, that's what a diplomatic boycott would be intended to do. Obviously, it would be it would be intended to sort of spread that message and to hopefully get some allied countries to get on board, U.S. allies to get on board with that as well, and perhaps raise awareness uh, in certain circles around the globe where maybe these issues that are going on in China are not as well known or or are, um, you know, perhaps carefully monitored and censored and such that they're not sort of getting the full story and the full um, kind of background on this. So, uh, so yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think it cuts both ways because it, it does run the risk again, I think of being seen as kind of a weak measure that doesn't really have much teeth to it. And I think we'll open the U S to, you know, perhaps ridicule in some cir- cir- circles and, and, you know, maybe, Maybe that matters, maybe it doesn't, but I think that um, you know that that would be a comparatively small price to pay if um, if it does raise that awareness to the degree that I think the folks who are pushing this in the U.S. government are hoping it will. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the comeback to that is that it's all a weak measure. I mean, there's just not much behavior changing that you'll get whether you pull the athletes or not. And I think you know, as the world becomes a bigger and and more diverse place, the U.S. presence at the Olympics is going to be missed less and less. Obviously, it would be missed if the U.S. were to pull out. But is that is that sort of um, step worth it when you consider all of the harm that would come to the athletes from from that taking place? I, it's just hard to justify. Right. Yeah. Um, they're all weak measures. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Even that would be a weak measure. And so, you know, do you want to do a weak measure that has a huge amount of collateral damage or a weak measure that has much less collateral damage um, for option B. That's fair. That's a fair point. All right. And with that, let's move on to lightning round. Number two topic, Burundi. And I'll All toss right. it to Tim. So a sanctions success story. So the whole goal of sanctions is to end sanctions because you want to have the changed behavior. And Burundi is a success story in that respect. Now, whether sanctions had anything to do with it, uh, that could be debated. But back in 2015, um, Burundi was in a form of crisis. The president, the two-term president there announced that he was going to run for a third term, um, even though the Constitution didn't allow for a third term. Um, there was all sorts of uh, chaos that ensued as a result. There were also human rights violations going Going on at the time. And um, so the U.S. imposed sanctions against Burundi. They were targeted sanctions, but they were designed to essentially restore democracy to Burundi and end human rights violations. And uh, after that, that, uh, that, that crisis abated some because Burundi decided to go to a, to, to adopt a constitutional amendment that would have allowed the president to run for a third term, but he opted out of running for a third term. And so when his term ended in 2020, um, actually a little before his term ended because that president wound up dying, but, um, but as his term was going to end in 2020, uh, there was an election in Burundi and it was a by all accounts, a free and fair election. The new president was elected. He instituted various human rights reforms, and the U.S. government reviewed their policy with respect to Burundi. And on November 18th, it terminated the sanctions program, meaning that all of the assets that were blocked are now unblocked. All of the SDNs from the Burundi program are no longer SDNs. And at some point in the near future, just as with the Sudan regulations and a couple of other regulations before them, those regulations are going to be pulled out of the pulled out of the code, and there will be no Burundi sanctions regulations anymore. Right. I think only two two quick points to add to that. Um, number one, 
as Tim went through the transfer of power following free and fair elections, that's that's the the key that's the key event here. We're, we're for that too. Yeah, we're for, we're very much for that. Uh, and even though that is the kind of stated purpose in some of these programs, you know, for example, Venezuela, um, you know, that's a long way off or it's sort of many moves ahead on the chessboard in some cases. But with respect to Burundi, as, as Tim said, a relatively short amount of time just from kind of tail end of the Obama era to um, to 2021 to have that play out about six years. Um, and then the second is to Tim's uh, other comment about whether or not the U.S. program had any impact. You know, my understanding is, and again, I can't claim to have um, had many questions about the Burundi program over the years, or this was a program that was largely, I think, um, kind of ignored during the Trump era. Um, but uh, there were multilateral sanctions that were imposed, not just U.S., EU and the African Union as well. And so, you know, I think there's a case to be made that that multilateral pressure allowed for there to eventually be a pathway to have those elections and to have the transfer of power and to um, allow for uh, kind of coming out of the uh, the crisis period that led to the standing up of the program in the first place. So, uh, again, just not too much more to say about it than that, but just given that we Sometimes, again, we sort of lose the forest for the trees. Like, why Why is the U.S. doing this? Or why are we doing this? Why do these things even exist? Um, this is this is why, is that you you sort of, uh, you, you hopefully clear a path through through sanctions to allow for some concrete outcome. We, we have that outcome here. Hopefully there will be no backsliding like we've seen with Burma. And, uh, you know, but... Um, you know, a, a positive development, obviously, and a, and a sort of a mini roadmap to how, um, you know, these programs can, in fact, should go away when uh, these goals are achieved. No, absolutely. And I didn't mean to suggest that the sanctions didn't play a role in it. No, no. Um, I just don't, I don't have any empirical yeah, evidence no, either no, way. But I'm, I s- not, I'm not claiming that I know either, but I think, you know, there's at least some, there's at least some kind of a case to be made, perhaps, that this was a contributing factor, maybe. Well, and, and, you know, they had a, they had a narrow goal. Um, it was a smaller country and it was multilateral sanctions. And so, you know, the fact that the behavior changed is at least some evidence that the sanctions were working and they changed, the behavior changed, as you pointed out, Brian, pretty quickly. And so this is, this is a good example, a textbook example, in my view, of when sanctions should work and they may well have worked here. And, and certainly that the behavior has changed to the extent that the sanctions are now gone, which is good. And our congratulations to the, the the good people of Burundi and the government of Burundi, which is now, in fact, sanctions-free, as we always implore exactly. our listeners to be. So that is good for them. So in any event, um, no, not to make light of it, a significant development, obviously, and something that, uh, you know, ending on a bit of a positive note after, um, uh, after talking about a lot of um, <laughs> spending most of our time today and otherwise talking about a lot of uh, difficult and dire circumstances that prompt these actions. Uh, so... Um, I think that's a good note to, to end on. Uh, and so with that, I think we are now wrapped. Um, again, we are uh, expecting this will be up shortly after Thanksgiving in the U.S. To, so to anybody who is here in the States or perhaps outside the States that celebrates Thanksgiving, we hope everybody has a happy, healthy, safe Thanksgiving with uh, your family. And uh, until next time, until perhaps our final episode of the year, our year-end extravaganza, 
Um, we hope everybody stays well and, of course, stays sanctions-free. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and stay sanctions-free. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.